Hey, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Before we start, I have a few announcements to make. Housekeeping, as they say. Announcement number one. For the first time, I'm running a survey of the Bioinformatics chat listeners. This is just to better understand what kind of people listen to this podcast and how I and my future guests can better serve you. Don't worry, I have no intentions of running ads here. So the only thing I'm trying to better target is the show itself. So if you're a regular or semi-regular listener, please take just one minute of your time and answer six short questions. You can even pause the podcast right now, unless of course you're driving or handling biohazardous materials, and go to bioinformatics.chat slash survey, or you can also find the link in the show notes as usual, and uh, I'd really appreciate your feedback. Announcement number two, I'll be attending the Woodstock Bio Conference in Tel Aviv in mid-February. If you're also there, uh, hit me up and let's meet. And finally, a bit of context about today's episode. It turned out to be very relevant to the current events, although we didn't really plan it this way. I first saw Chris's preprint in November, and that was when I invited him to the podcast. And we recorded this episode at the beginning of this year, when the Wuhan coronavirus outbreak was already going on, but at least I wasn't really aware of it, and I suspect Chris wasn't either. So we don't mention it, I think, although Chris often gives the example of the SARS virus, which is also a coronavirus and a closely related one to the Wuhan virus. And the tone of our discussion was perhaps more lighthearted than it would be if we recorded this episode today. Of course, our thoughts go out to everyone who has been affected by the virus. In any case, I think this is a great episode and it will help you understand how the modeling of epidemics is done in general and also maybe it will help you make sense of the analytics regarding the current virus outbreak. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Today my guest is Chris Parag. Chris is a research fellow at uh, Imperial College London, and we will be talking about epidemics. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So um, obviously we should work hard to prevent epidemics or uh, try to sort of fight them. But we will be talking about modeling epidemics, like using mathematics and statistics and maybe even information theory to describe epidemics. So um, why is that useful? Why uh, should we spend any time on that instead of like developing the cure? Yeah, so so what, well, first of all, um, even if, so say the most common measure, or the most common measures against uh, infectious diseases, and I should probably say like, uh, we're only focusing on like um, communicable diseases, then you could kind of think about the vaccination, the quarantine, uh, which is kind of like isolation. And if it's animals, it's culling, right? Now, if uh, for vaccination particularly, we could spend time and a, t- a lot of time is spent developing better vaccines. But if you need to figure out how to deploy them, how to do them in a resource efficient manner, and I guess when to start and when to stop even, because... Um, 
you might see some infected cases of a disease, but it doesn't mean an epidemic has actually begun. All of these sort of questions around how to use these medical tools. We kind of need models which describe what we consider to be the physics of the epidemic. Yeah, and uh, also, like, there is this notion, I think, uh, fairly well-known nowadays, um, the herd immunity. Yes. And we can actually understand it, right, through the lens of of these epidemics models. Uh, Yeah, that's correct. Actually, herd immunity as a concept kind of comes out, or having the idea sort of comes out of the dynamics of uh, some of the early epidemic models. It comes out as sort of what you consider a threshold. So there's some threshold of the population that needs to be vaccinated to prevent the spread of a disease. And the equations that sort of describe that spread, um, to start, just to get slightly technical, they use this parameter called the reproduction number. And what they found, the reproduction number describes, say, the average number uh, of people an infected person will infect uh, in some in the next upcoming days and on average and that number was found to actually link directly to the percentage of the population that should be vaccinated and once you use that relationship you get this sort of threshold uh, which informs the herd immunity so if that threshold is like 80% then you'd say as long as 80% of the population is vaccinated uh, we don't expect the epidemic to spread. And hence, that's that effectively defines herd immunity. Right. So uh, let's talk about some of the models that uh, have been developed over time to describe and, and even predict the, the dynamics of an epidemic. What were the early, the classical, the original models, or maybe the most well-known models um, that were applied to epidemics? Yeah. So probably the um, the most popular uh, is called the SIR model, uh, which means a susceptible infected recovered, and it's what it does. It's it sort of developed. Um, it's been used widely and used to variations of it are used. They're used up until say the last uh, Ebola outbreaks, for example. They have they're very practical. And what these models say is that we think of an epidemic or how an infectious disease goes through a population in terms of what state it leaves uh, individuals in. And to kind of like, to to get what that means is so the S being susceptible means that uh, someone is classed as susceptible if they could be infected. They have not been infected yet. They're just sort of naively minding their own business in the population. Um... An infected person obviously contracted the disease and a recovered person is someone who's been vaccinated or for the purposes of modeling has even died. The point being that they can't continue to spread the disease. Um, That's obviously disease specific because for Ebola, even if you do die, you can keep transmitting. So, um, but so this model actually dates back uh, even as far as uh, the 1930s um, and when you sort of what you do is called a compartmental model so you say well we put all the we think about all the susceptible people as one class or one compartment all the infected people as another class and all the uh, recovered people 
and we sort of describe and what the this is where the mathematics comes in we sort of describe what sort what physics determines um s going to i i going to r and maybe even going back to s because for some infections um even after you recover you could potentially be reinfected now the sort of and that's traditionally done with ordinary differential equations and so on and it's actually using that type of model, uh, they were able to derive these expressions for the vaccination coverage that leads to herd immunity, for example. And uh, this, this, this model is, it's sort of, um, it's been extended a lot to sort of, to account for other various different classes that you might put in. So for example, for Ebola, they put in a class that said you've been exposed, but you haven't registered any symptoms yet, and they call that E. So we just sort of put these classes together and we describe how they interact with each other, and that forms the basis of the most widely used set of models, which are called compartmental models. Right, and on its face, it's a very simple model, and it's sort of reminiscent of uh, you know models in population dynamics where you have like different areas where some... Uh, uh, some organisms may live, and they yeah. sort of migrate between these areas. Um, these are the the compartments, right? And also, like this model by itself, it sort of describes, or at least what you just described. Um, it doesn't give like an immediate mathematical expression. It's sort of like a conceptual description of a model, which you can use, I guess, different mathematical uh, models, mathematical methods to investigate like you can treat it as an agent-based model where you model each person individually and sort of track you know do maybe simulations of how they uh, become infected or how they recover yep. or you can model these with the uh, ODEs ordinary yep. differential equations right or uh, maybe um, you can model the probabilities like something like a master equation right can, can you um talk about these options and maybe what are the popular ways to turn this into a proper mathematical model? Sure, sure. So, so far, I've sort of, as you, as you correctly pointed out, just conceptually said um, that, that the way we're looking at the sort of the world or the, the population of interest that could have a disease spreading is to sort of class people, right? Um, the key underlying bit of dynamics, if you want to call it, that is what you would call a contact process. And all it means is that the way an infection spreads is that somehow a susceptible mining his own business or her own business randomly encounters an infected person and the infection passes between them. And the rate at which that infection, uh, with just um, this sort of contact occurs is sort of proportional to the number of susceptibles in the population and the number of infected in the population, right? Now, in reality, uh, those numbers are fluctuating stochastically. Um, so whereas the ODE might put would put in a term that's, so if S is the number of susceptibles and I is the number of infected, might put in a term that's proportional to S times I and run uh, some, uh, just you just solve the ODEs with some in, uh, integrator. Uh, what you do instead is you'd start to think about what's the probability that um, 
one infected person leads to multiple, like two infected people and so on. And then that's where the, you'd still be using this S times I, but now it would come into the rate of change um, of these probabilistic equations. And particularly, and as you rightly said, like once we, once we get, we move into getting it into very, like, I guess you'd say like more modern mathematical methods, what we do is we, we use an individual level model. So we say, as I said before, um, an infected person going to two infected people. And then we describe that with what they call uh, a chemical master equation. And to just, I won't go too much into how that's actually constructed, but to just give you an I idea of what that means is, so the reason why it's called chemical master equation is because it's been used, uh, it was sort of came out of stochastic chemistry where you'd say like two molecules collided at some rate and a product was produced. Yeah, and you can think about this process, right, also as a sort of chemical process where an infected person is sort of like a an enzyme or a catalyst yes, exactly. which turns an, a healthy person into an infected person. Exactly. So, so exactly what you said. So in the case when two molecules collide, if those molecules are X and Y, the rate of that reaction is usually given as proportional to X times Y, the number of X and the number of Y. And that's precisely the same for this contact process uh, that underlies the SIR type models. Um, so that's that's the very heart of these probabilistic methods, but sort and they're very useful. But one of the the issues with them is that as you start getting more data, as you start and your data in this case would be um, you're looking at hospital uh, hospitalizations of infected people, uh, numbers of report like reports coming in, this sort of stuff. So it sort of counts counts of individuals, and you might also keep counts of potential deaths, counts of vaccines initiated, and so on. But the point of this um, model is that as you start to want to predict more complicated behaviors, you start putting more classes in. So for example, if uh, we were looking at flu, we might put a class in for people at an older age and people at a younger age because maybe they have a higher potential for spreading or being infected. And when you start doing that, number of uh, unknowns, you could say, in your equations start rising rapidly. And that might be okay if you're interested in, say, specifically uh, what's the likelihood that an older person will get um, infected and hence should we focus our vaccination resources on older people because they're more at risk, which is definitely the way to go. But often you might want some uh, coarser sort of ideas. So for example, will this epidemic end or how large will this epidemic become? And in effect, what you really want is just a single time series of infected people. And you're sort of collapsing down quite a large model to produce almost a one dimensional prediction. And when you want to go to that level, then you take a different look at how you model epidemics. Right, and that's the sort of models that we will be mainly talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So specifically the the renewal model. So can you describe and you you sort of did, but uh, make it explicit how in what way a renewal model is different from the SIR model? Exactly. So so just just before um, I say that, I should probably mention that uh, with the SIR model and it's 
extensions such as the SEIR with the exposed class and so on. Uh, you have uh, these these parameters that determine sort of how S goes to I, how I goes to, to I and so on, like chemical reactions. And that's because you're looking almost at an individual like molecular level. But when you want to make sort of population-wide forecasts uh, and so on, it helps to instead think about how how the epidemic is kind of behaving um, sort of like sort of behaving on a sort of more macro scale and the the branching process model or renewal model is one fundamental way to do that as well and it also has roots from far back because it's based on an equation from uh, Lotka and Euler who uh, they were looking well independently at different times but they were looking at uh, reproduction in a population and they had an equation for how uh, how that population would grow given some reproductive parameters and it turns out uh, you could think of an epidemic like that because when an infected person generates two infections say that's if you drew that as sort of like a tree that's like one node going to two two leaves um, it's kind of a reproductive or branching process and so what the renewal process says which it, it takes this Lotka Euler sort of reproductive approach and sort of specializes it a bit for epidemics and what it does is it says the reproduction or branching of the number of infected people in the epidemic so we only focused on that because that's sort of the key uh, one-dimensional time series we might want to predict or learn about um, the number of infected people in that epidemic uh, will change depending on two two particular bits of information one is uh, this reproduction number, which I spoke of previously as being linked to herd immunity, for example. And the reproduction number says, so if the reproduction number is, say, two, it means that on average, uh, across a generation, and I'll get to what a generation is just now, across a generation, one infected person will produce two, will lead to two infections. So in generation one, we'd have one infection. Generation two, we'd have two infections. And so to clarify, if the person remains infected, they are included in that number, right? So uh, to produce two individuals, uh, two infected individuals, you can either sort of infect two other people and uh, yourself become cured, or you can remain sick and also infect another person. Yeah, because... If uh, R was was less than one, you couldn't sustain the infection. Right. So if R is less than one, that means on average, like people are getting healthier and infecting, like fewer people than fewer <laughs> I guess they they are uh, um, getting better. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Or on average, that person has been sufficiently isolated that they're rarely like most of their yeah they are getting better or most of their contacts. Um, maybe the people they're in contact with have immunity or, um, you know, improved uh, protection against that. And hence, sometimes they might be infected, sometimes not. Kind yeah, of. but I, like if no one is getting better, then R cannot be less than one, right? It, it will be basically one. Well, it, 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 can, it can be in the sort of morbid case where everyone's dying. 
which 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 what it means is that there's a depletion of people you could potentially infect which is also how you do isolation when you isolate someone you're kind of doing it's just saying you're just removing the people they could infect so yeah so this our our parameter is very um important it's been it's actually even been talked about there's this uh hollywood movie from a while ago with matt damon called contagion and they based their whole story around uh an r parameter so there's our parameter is sort of like this reproduction number. But as I mentioned, there's this generation time thing. So I said that it gives you the average number of people someone will infect uh, in uh, the next generation. And the way we describe this generation is we sort of think about the time it takes on average as well for one in, um, that infected person to, send, to transmit. And that's sort of, uh, if you look at it as like a population where... I don't know, one infected individual randomly encountered um, people and someone got infected and then someone else got infected a bit late and so on. You'll get a distribution. And you could sort of say the average time to the next infection is what we define the generation as. But we generally use the entire distribution. So so sort of like to, to, to roll it back a bit, what we're saying is that the way that the infection spreads across a population is we have to have an idea of how it's multiplying, hence the reproduction, and how long it's taking to multiply, hence the generation time. So you, so you could uh, maybe say that the generation time is like, so you have the R number, which is the average people that's going to be infected by, by yep. one person, right? And then these events of getting infected, they're sort of distributed over time, right? And this gives us the distribution of, uh, so in total we have R, but this R is spread over the lifetime of the individual and how exactly that is spread out over that time interval. Exactly, yes. And and this, this the reason why that, that's important as well is that, um, the if it takes a long if if the mean time to spread is is long you actually find that uh, public health officials and stuff uh, will will probably find it easier to control that epidemic because they have more time to act and that's actually been demonstrated in um if you compare some attempts to say uh SARS versus uh, I think maybe f- uh, one of the flus or pandemic flu uh, one of them, uh, I don't remember exactly which one, but one of them was easier to control because that mean generation time was longer. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, if the mean generation time is longer, it means that the epidemic itself grows more slowly. Yeah, more slowly, right? because, exactly. Uh, eventually, you'll infect these are individuals, but uh, if you infect them right away, they will immediately go on and infect others, whereas if you'll infect them in 10 years and during these 10 years they won't be infecting others yeah exactly exactly and um so this it's sort of like the r is kind of determining like a y-axis and this mean generation time is kind of determining like a time axis on your sort of you're letting this sort of thing go through the population and that's our description of the epidemic and the key point so normally, uh, you can try to estimate the generation time distribution. Um, it's sort of fixed for specific epidemics or diseases. Uh, 
we will assume that we kind of know that from other data. And what we'll be interested in is saying, well, if I looked at the number of people hospitalized or known to tested to have an infection across time, can I figure out what's going on with R? Right. So we introduced these uh, two core concepts, the reproduction number R and the generation time distribution. Yes. And I guess the third core concept we need to introduce is the epidemic curve, right? Exactly, yes. So the epidemic curve is quite a standard way of looking at how an epidemic is spreading and acting. And it's just simply a sort of time series or time log of registered infections. So someone might be getting, the WHO might be collecting information from various hospitals and health centers, tallying it up every day. And actually that's what was done to kind of figure out what was going on in the Ebola epidemic of 2015, well, 2014 to 16. And that's what led to the, the sort of new, people extrapolated those curves and it led to the crazy news articles about Ebola is going to kill us all. Um, which, uh, which brings into another point, um, it's also important having some bit of data, how you then proceed to use the model to predict from that bit of data. But the epidemic curve is kind of like the core bit of data that we have. So the renewal model uh, describes how you derive the epidemic curve uh, from knowing the reproduction number and the generation time distribution. That's correct. Uh, but in practice, we want to go in the opposite direction. We assume that we know the number of infected cases over time. That's the epidemic curve. And uh, somehow we know about the specific disease we know its generation time distribution. Correct. But what we really want to understand is the R number, right? We want to estimate it and to understand where this epidemic is, is going. So how hard is it to estimate R from uh, f the, the reproduction number from the epidemic curve and yeah. the generation time distribution? I should probably, before answering that, just give some context why we're, uh, we've solved um, touched on it, but to be explicitly why we're so obsessed with this R parameter. Um, it's that if R is less than one, when we said the epidemic would die out, uh, public health agencies and so on sort of tracking the epidemic could then be reasonably confident that the control measures they've implemented up until that point are working. And it's important to, to, to get this kind of estimate almost in real time or in real time, because if they thought that R was less than one and then stopped, say, doing as much vaccination or in the case of animals, stopped culling. Um, and then in reality, uh, that was old information and R had gone back above one. That relaxation of control measures could lead to the epidemic, uh, what they call flaring up again, which has happened and did actually happen with Ebola. Um, we also want to know how big R is above one, because that kind of describes, as we mentioned, like how quickly that epidemic curve is going to rise. And if we know that we could start planning, for example, uh, because we'll be using that to kind of figure out how many infected people we expect in the future, we could use that to plan how many hospital beds we might need or other resources. And that's uh, super useful in eventually controlling that epidemic. Yeah, that, that's a great point about uh, 
you know, what happens if they stop vaccination? Because uh, the, the core thing about the reproduction number is that it rests on this core assumption that everything remains as it is. It's sort exactly. of a not a real concept. So maybe we should compare it with this other quantity. Um, I don't remember the exact term for it, uh, sort of like a case reproduction number. It's like the number of people that a given person will infect over time. Right. Um, uh, not like on average without any assumptions, but really how, how many people are you going uh, to infect? And that sort of represents a specific physical quantity, whereas the uh, effective reproduction. Yeah, number, the, yeah. the effective reproduct, uh, reproduction number is uh, is like a synthetic yeah. uh, quantity um, that uh, involves uh, these assumptions. Exactly. And um, as you brought that up, just to sort of to give you an idea of, of what... So as we were mentioning that this, this R is kind of telling you the average number of people someone will infect. Uh, if you start to think about the epidemic on finer sort of scales of... So we're heading back a little bit towards the individual level, which was described by the SIR models and so on. Um, you could, as you were saying, you could track someone and see how many people they've infected and then track the people they've infected and see. And you could find that you'll get numbers that vary very wildly. Um, so, for example, with SARS, there's a case where uh, someone is believed to have been in an elevator and they sort of infected everyone in that elevator. And that was they call those events super spreading events and that that is a an, a separate issue that needs to be considered but it's as you said we're using the effective reproduction number because we're we're believing that this average uh is telling us up, up to date information as long as we're calculating that average uh in real time and i guess uh one of the and going back to your previous question about what's the difficulty well the key difficulty is we want to to keep this R term in real time, but we also understand that the epidemic uh, doesn't change. Well, there's two issues, really. We want to keep this R term in real time, but we understand our ability to estimate R depends on how many time points uh, we believe to, or how many uh, time points of infected people, which portion of the epidemic curve, you could say, we believe uh, informs us about R now. Right, so why can't we just take the whole epidemic curve and make inferences uh, based on that? So if we take the whole epidemic curve and we say the entire curve um, describes a single R value, for example, we'll end up with a situation where we will estimate that R very well. It will have what you'd say high precision, which means a low uncertainty around that estimate. But that estimate would not it would not properly represent what's going on in the epidemic. It would be extremely biased. And the reason for that is the epidemic behavior changes across time. So for uh, early on in an epidemic, there might be this growth of the epidemic and the R parameter will, might be a, a large value, generally above one. Uh, but later on, when the epidemic is dying, when control measures have kicked in, that R will be less than one. Um, if we used just the whole epidemic curve to guess, uh, to infer a single R, we'll get some average of those two things, which doesn't really tell us what's happening in each stage of the epidemic. Now, we could go the other route and say, well, every single new day, for uh, all the infected cases were generated by a different reproduction number. So we make R a time series itself. 
And now that allows us maximum flexibility to get trends, so variations in reproduction number across time. But now we're only using one day's worth of data to inform our parameter, and that will lead to very noisy estimates. So while we could track different trends, we now can't really be as confident in what's happening. And if we have a large confidence interval around our value, say, say we estimated a mean value of 0.9, but the confidence is between 0.3 and 2. Well, if it actually turns out to be closer to 2, that's a totally different epidemic we need to deal with than if it is closer to 0.9. Right. So the buzzword uh, we maybe should bring up is the bias variance trade-off. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We have to find a way to trade off between what we believe to be the amount of data or the portion of the epidemic curve that's informing us about what's happening now. And the way we do that is we think about having a window back in time from, say, today, which tells us uh, that everything, all the data in that window, we believe to have the same R value. And this is an assumption that's important, not just because of the bias variance trade-off in how we estimate R, but also because it's making an assumption about how quickly we think our epidemic is changing. And just to qualify that, a real epidemic is, of course, this time-varying stochastic structure. So at any point when we're sort of trying to narrow it down to a bunch of parameters, we're making assumptions about stationarity, is called, so how quickly parameters and variables of the epidemic are changing. So selecting this window length can have a big influence on um, what our estimates would be and potentially then uh, change how we act in terms of policies and so on based on this R. And I should point out that this type of model and this type of ana um, analysis has been used uh, in forecasting. It has been used to try and understand what's been going on even retros or has gone on retrospectively in epidemics. So it is, it is tied to what uh, public agencies are actually using. It's not all that they're actually using because generally we have other types of data sources as well, but it is one of the important tools. Cool. So uh, it sounds like we want to know the reproduction number and for that we need to choose the window size of how far back to look at, at the um, epidemic curve. Uh, and what options do we have uh, to choose that uh, window size? So, so currently for the branching process model, because I suspect as it's a bit newer than the SIR type stuff, there's not that much theory surrounding what we should do. Uh, as a consequence, um, people generally who use it to, to, um, to analyze uh, epidemics, and it has been used on, say, flu or SARS or um, measles and so on, they tend to, 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 to use trial and error. They basically have some ad hoc means of picking window length. And generally, they sort of do it, they sort of like test the sensitivity of that. So it'd be like, I'm going to use a window length of 10 days, see what my estimates look like, and then use one of 20 days. And if it doesn't look too different, then maybe 10 days is fine. That sort of kind of argument. No formal way yet exists for this problem yeah which which is not great right no it's not great i think what's happened is it's kind of it's it's it's, it's very much a more methods 
problem that is important for epidemiology rather than an epidemiological problem. So I think it hasn't received as much attention and people generally think um, or have some belief that smoother curves for R, smoother estimates of R across time are more believable. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and that definitely makes sense, but only to, you need a way to actually be sure of that, especially if you want to, 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 to make predictions from this stuff. Mm-hmm. So what's the danger of oversmoothing? So the danger of oversmoothing is, if we go back to the, ex- the first example where I said, imagine if we just took one single R value um, from the entire epidemic curve, right? Mm-hmm. That would look super, well, I mean, it would look ridiculously smooth because it's like a line, <laughs> but it'd be very smooth and our confidence interval um, would be small because we've assumed that all this data is informing on this parameter. And that would be misleading because that number would not give us, well, it, it, it could tell us, for example, if that average across the whole epidemic turned out to be uh, less than one, for example, it might deceive us into thinking everything is fine when it's not, or it might, what it in terms of operationally, it's not giving us any details to really work with, you know, across the. So the so the bias in choosing too long a window is that, uh, well, there are two problems. One is that we might be misled, and secondly, um, and this is probably more useful for when you're responding to an epidemic in real time. It means that every new bit of data we have actually only changes our understanding of the epidemic in a very small way. And that makes it hard to really respond to real-time changes. So just to, to qualify that, if, if 100 days of an epidemic have been ongoing and we very quickly implemented um, some sort of control protocol, and we then check five, more, five days later to see if it's had any effect... Um, we're not really going to be able to tell for some time because that long window is going to be using 100 days of data that are not actually relevant anymore to this bit of the... because we've changed R effectively. Yeah. So, like, if if, if I were approaching this, um, just sort of uh, brainstorming for, for a bit... Um, Maybe I would try to do some kind of exponential, uh, what's it called? Uh, smoothing. Exponential uh, smoothing, yeah, where the uh, newer points count for more. I'm, I'm not sure how hard it is to incorporate into the estimator for R, but uh, you know, in, instead of uh, making an abrupt cutoff mm-hmm. at the window length, you yeah. would sort of smoothly incorporate all the points but give more weight to the more recent points? Yes, you could definitely um, do that. One way of sort of one thing that's implicitly in these models is you tend to, because all of this is uh, Bayesian inference, you tend to put a prior on what you believe um, R might be. And that sort of in, in, in itself does some smoothing because it, it throws out, say, some really extreme values for mm-hmm. example um but yes uh there's different ways there's sort of different because this is this is a signal processing problem really so there's there's various um smoothers uh moving average windows things like this that you could do um to sort of try to work out where the stationary points are 
Um, they just haven't really been explored yet for this problem. And I should probably point out one of the things that makes this problem slightly more difficult is so explicitly what we're saying is the infected number of people say today depend on a previous reproduction number and on the generation time distribution. The generation time distribution itself um, is being used with all the past incidence variables. So there's actually also an extra inbuilt um, dependence on past incidence values as well. So there's there's a bit of correlation inside the model too. Right, and I guess even if we apply these uh, signal processing or uh, time series analysis methods, uh, there are still some parameters that we may need to adjust, right? Like the, um, the the parameters of the exponential smoothing, for example. Yeah, like the time constant, right? I think it's... Yeah, well, yeah. 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 Um, and you uh, propose a systematic approach uh, to, uh, to decide what the optimal value of these parameters or hyperparameters is, right? So what what's your core idea here? Right, so so I wouldn't, I'll first of just explain more generally what the idea is before I get into how it's applied to the renewal or branching process model. But so my idea is you have to sort of think what a realistic model is or sort of um, just re, just philosophically even, just go back to what that means. Now, in broader picture terms, um, across all models in epidemiology, whether it be the SIR types, the renewal types, or other types, there are other models that are sort of look a bit more like curve fitting, for example. Um, there's been this issue that because there's all these things going on in an epidemic, and we want to sometimes we want to, to put in all the biological details or all the things that we think affects the physics of the epidemic. And um, by physics of the epidemic, I might just mean how it spreads. Um, because we want to do that, we could end up with quite complex models. I mean, the reason we're talking about the renewal model right now is just because when you want to look at the population scale, you don't need the complexity of individual level interactions that the SIR allows, for example. Now, it might be biologically true, for example, that we need to have all these different parameters um, in our model. Uh, and it, there might be very good reasons for that. But, and, and people might say, well, the more we have all this known physics in, uh, the more realistic our model is. And that's kind of like the standard viewpoint. Now, what uh, some guys in the information theory world, um, a bunch of researchers from since the 1960s, have been thinking about is they've been thinking about models in terms constrained by the data that we have. So, so a model with a bunch of parameters that we can't really, that we know maybe should be there um, biologically or physically, but we can't in any way um, constrain with the data, that's not useful. So they have this Occam's razor type approach where they said a model, a realistic model is kind of the the most complex model that the data allows or it's a justified model in terms of confident fitting of parameters and this comes this is analogous to actually in information theory doing compression and um, just conceptually just means that your model is a way of compressing data and 
the best model is the one that com that does the best compression. So maybe it's worth elaborating a bit. How exactly does a model compress the data? So so the idea is um, simply that if we have some bit of data and we want to communicate that to someone, we could do that in our model freeway, which we just tell them every single value or so on, or we could have it we could have some parameters that sort of describe the underlying process and then describe the data in terms of those parameters, which is almost like doing the model fitting and so on and so forth. And the idea behind when you do something like that, you're actually, you're pulling out sort of the main features of the data, you're putting them in your model and that allows you to actually compress what you send across because you send across the model and you send across whatever extra bits remain like residuals you could almost think of. Mm -hmm. And when um, some guys, uh, particularly a guy called Joma Rissanen did this, uh, he realized that if you looked at the model that led to the minimum description, uh, so the minimum code length, you could the, say... The minimum uh, number of bits, bits needed to transmit the, all the values. Yeah, the minimum number of bits you need to transmit the values. Um, he actually found that that, op that was a consistent and sensible way to define what I've been calling a realistic model. And it also matched up with some of, so probably I should mention that the very best in model selection out there right now is called Bayesian model selection. And it's generally quite computationally difficult, but it's seen as like the gold standard. And he, um, Rasanen found that his approach, which doesn't really even seem to be, it seems like completely different conceptually actually converged to what that Bayesian model selection would give you. Um, now to bring that all back to renewal models, uh, I sort of take that philosophy of saying, well, in terms of the reproduction numbers on this window, I need to only select windows that are sensible um, with respect to, uh, you could say some sort of compression. But the way I do this compression idea is very implicit. And, and this is probably, a bit of a leap, but what it says is if you do this, if you choose the model that compresses best, you also choose the model that predicts the next value best. Right. So to put it into concrete terms, um, let's say you want to communicate to me the um, the incidence curve, right? Yeah. Um, the number of infected people. And uh, one option is to transmit every single um, daily value yeah right or you could fit a curve using some reproduction numbers yeah and then just transmit these reproduction numbers and so in the limit if you pick the window of size one you'll be transmitting as many reproduction numbers as uh, there are days as there are yep. incidence va uh, values yeah and that's not very useful you're not compressing much right so that no. sort of forces you to pick uh, more frugal or less overfitting models. Exactly, exactly. And um, and the sort of, but the way that we actually do this practically is that we don't actually compute any code lengths or anything like that. It turns out we could use something called the accumulative predicted error, which which is just a big way of saying what we do is we look at our epidemic curve and we pick a point say time t, we use all the data for some, oh, we and we pick various windows. So we use different windows back from t 
we compute our estimates of R, and then we use those estimates to predict the number of infected we expect at time t plus 1. Now we do this across our total uh, epidemic curve, so at every t, and we generate a score based on how well we've predicted every um, incident um, or infection data point. And then we and we do this um, for different window lengths, and whichever window length yields the lowest score, that's the one that's deemed to actually be compressing it best. And to probably also think about it in terms of more machine learning terms or more standard bioinformatics terms, you would say that that's also the model that would minimize generalization error. So it minim so if you got another data set from the same underlying process, it would be best able to describe that as well. Right, and sort of the standard way to assess the generalization error is cross-validation. And you can look at this as, as like the, the um, analog of cross-validation for time series. So for time series, you cannot do like the, the naive uh, cross-validation because uh, you have to keep the like the ordering of of time points, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, if you would imagine like a straightforward um, analog of cross validation for time series, that that is sort of like it. But you have an interesting twist where you don't simply infer a single value of R and use that for, uh, to to predict, right? But you sort of integrate over all the values of R. Can can you talk a bit? about that yeah sure so so what's going on is that we have at any point in time when we estimate an r from a window we would have a, a distribution of possible um our estimate would have uncertainty around it and that would be described by a distribution now we could predict values uh from we could draw r's from that distribution and predict different incidence values for the next time point well which are counts of infections so what that process, which you would do, um, say, computationally, you could also do mathematically, but just integrating out, uh, integrating across that entire distribution. And if you do that for the renewal model, because of how it's set up, you get a very nice expression based on the negative binomial distribution that describes the predictive, sort of like how likely we are to see one, two, five, ten, whatever number of infected people uh, at the next time point. And what we could do then is we then take the actual, because remember we're using data we already have, we just, we've just been treating it step by step. So we take the actual data, t plus one, and we evaluate it, you know, we find the probability corresponding to it from that distribution. Right, so how likely we were to predict that Yeah, how likely value. we were to predict, yeah. And then that produces, we take the log of that or negative of the log of that, and that produces the score for that data point. Mm-hmm. And um, it's 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 kind of you could think of it as being sort of like a log likelihood. At this point, what you want to do is you want to do this thing sequentially across all t values. What that helps with is, for example, if I used a very long time window, um, and actually my epidemic was changing quite quickly, then my predictions are not going to be very good because they're almost going to be roughly similar because I've used this huge window, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to get a quite large score across the whole epidemic. Um, if you used, uh, of course, if the epidemic actually was changing very slowly, then our predictions would start to make sense and our, our score would decrease. And that's kind of the idea behind it. So 
what we're effectively doing is by predicting the next data point uh, within our data set, we're sort of saying this is a way to characterize how quickly the epidemic statistics are changing. And so to summarize, you sort of use this inspiration from information theory yes. to develop a relatively simple method, right, which does not attempt to like enumerate all possible encodings of the data, uh, but it, it uses maybe some approximations to, to derive like a reasonable estimate for, for the model complexity. And then you sort of minimize the the total description length, which involves, well, I guess the your description length is just how many values you need to to transmit. Yeah. Right. What What is the penalty for uh, having too few parameters to transmit? Right. So you you pay only a few bits of information to transmit very few parameters. Right, but then, uh... but then, because you don't describe the actual curve well, you don't fit it very well. You have to pay a lot to for that excess for those errors. You could say. So you somehow need to convert those errors into yeah. bits as well. So you imagine like encoding the errors themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and like the larger, of... you assume that the larger the errors, the more bits. Yeah, you or, have to. Uh, or perhaps to like take it to the next extreme, it's if you used uh, one parameter per data point, then um, you don't have any errors to transmit, but you have this really complicated model to put forth. But um, to just kind of for conceptual intuition of why this accumulative predictive error is the right thing to do versus say taking a squared error or doing anything else really, it's, it's, it's probably three points that are worth mentioning. Um, one is that, uh, as you said, with the cross-validation, if you actually did cross-validation or cross-validation-based methods, uh, they assume that you could permute your data, and we can't do that here because things depend on each other causally. Um, it's like incidence values in the past determine, um, contribute to the incidence in the future via the generation time distribution. So we really need that causality in there. Um, secondly, is that this method doesn't make any assumptions about um, the model that it's being used. So you could actually take the same method, you'd have to derive a different uh, predictive distribution, but you take the same method and go and try and predict stuff um, with um, SIR type models. And maybe you want to there uh, characterize how many compartments. So you might say I have a SIR and I have a SEIR and I'm still trying to predict infected people, which one makes more sense. And you could still use this, this broadly, this method. Um, the other thing we'll mention is a bit more of theoretical interest is the reason that this sort of sequential causal thing works is that you could take a joint distribution and you could always factor it as, so you could take probability x1, x2, x3, and you could always factor it as a probability of x3 given x2 multiplied by a probability of x2 given x1 multiplied by x probability of x1. And those, those factorizations are actually those predictive distributions that I've been talking about. 
So the this accumulative prediction error is trying to actually um, get you the best joint distribution, or you could say the log of that joint distribution, and that becomes the score. Now that score, this log of your joint distribution, um, is actually maps directly to a code length in some way. So that's just the conceptual link there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why doing this ape, this ape thing, accumulated prediction error, actually leads you to doing the compression. Um, but the so so that's useful. And then the probably the most important bit practically for why this this could be good for these models is. As I mentioned, renewal models, uh, because they are looking at this sort of population-wide macro detail, and we're really interested in sort of um, macro behaviors. Is the epidemic over? Is it going to increase? Is it falling? Is control working? So on. We want to get that information quickly. And this sort of uh, model selection or window selection is good because you could compute it quite easily. So you don't need to go to Bayesian model selection, which would be the, I guess, the gold standard, which would require lots of integrations and maybe Markov chain Monte Carlo procedures. Yeah. So those methods, you just draw numbers out of your, um, draw probabilities from your negative binomial distribution. So it's exact, effectively. And on the subject of uh, applying uh, the same method to different models, you actually did something pretty incredible and applied the same method to like a completely different domain, not just a different epidemic type, right? But you applied it to the coalescent model. Yes, yes. Uh, so how uh, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> right, so, so actually, so the coalescent process, I won't go too much into it, but it's also, it does have links to epidemiology, but it's used in almost a different field completely, which is uh, phylogenetics. And what it describes is a tree where uh, you could think of the tips of that tree as being samples of infected people, and you kind of want to work out their ancestry. So is is the idea here, so what, what do you apply the phylogeny to do? You apply the not to the people, right, but maybe to the viruses or, or bacteria that you yeah, extract. Yeah, yeah, yes, correct. You can get samples of the virus from different people, and then um, you could construct this tree based on genetic mutations and so on. The reason for using this tree is that you try to work out the what they call the effective population size, which in the case of an epidemic is kind of like our eyes, but not quite exactly. Um, but So they're trying to infer that. So they're saying we don't know that. What we have is a sample from a population of the virus, and we have a tree that describes something. So it's a very it's related, but it's a very very different model um, in terms of what it's trying to do. But interestingly, if you look at the maths behind it, um, so to just so I didn't mention this, but in the renewal model, sort of the statistics being used were Poisson statistics. So it just meant that. The number of infected people at time t, it, uh, followed a Poisson distribution that depended on the reproduction number at that time and sort of like the generation time multiplied by past infected people, like in a sensible way. Um, now, the coalescent process, uh, the branching points of its tree uh, also have a Poisson distribution, but there you actually have the individual events. So what, ha what happened in the renewal model is when we say we saw five infected today, 
that's kind of like five events happen. We don't know when in the day they happen, so we've aggregated it across the day. Uh, in the coalescent process, you have the actual event times. But what you could do is you could group those times and treat it like the way that we did our epidemic curve. And then you'll find that the statistics of these models are quite, um, you know, they, they all involve types of windows and types of Poisson uh, distributions. And then therefore you could use, and, and uh, therefore you could use again, similar methods related to um, these minimum description lengths and so on. And they're actually computable for these types of models. How do um, these sort of windows or, or this model complexity, how does it arise in the coalescent model? So the coalescent model says, because, so in the same way that we don't really know what the true time varying function describing R is, it could be very complex and we approximate it with um, window, win, uh, constants that change across time, you could say piecewise constant functions. Um, they also use piecewise constant functions to describe this effective population size, which could be doing all sorts of things as well. And the model that does that is quite a popular model called the Skyline model. Uh, it was called Skyline model because the estimate you would get would be this piecewise thing that they thought looked like the skyline of a city, mm -hmm. for example. So that's where you could say the window size comes in. In that world, they've done a bit more work on that, though. But uh, the solutions that currently exist for choosing window size, and again, window size has the same bias variance ideas for this process. Um, the, the methods that they've used are often be quite computationally complex, complex um, including the Bayesian model selection stuff. So they do have solutions, it's just that they take a, a fair bit of time to run. And they're often doing um, some extra things in the background because the model sort of fits in with a couple others. Um, but you could, if you wanted a quick idea of what would be a sensible way to choose um, your window sizes for, for population size, you could use a, the same method. Um, it just, you'd get a different distribution. Mm -hmm. And uh, I should probably say on a side note that uh, for, for those of you who are into statistical models, um, if you choose your window size to be such that every event um, or every data point matches a parameter, so we have a one-to-one -one correspondence, so like a definite overfitting model, right? Mm -hmm. um, you could very much suffer issues with statistical identifiability because, for example, if we go back to the epidemic curve idea, if one day we didn't see any infected people, um, we wouldn't be able to estimate any R there, really. Uh, so that would be unidentifiable. The, the strange thing in the coalescent world is that that's exactly the model that they use, but they then assume some autocorrelations to kind of create the window. So it's a little bit implicit. But um, yeah, effectively, effectively what we're saying is that these information theoretic methods which might seem very abstract, um, they seem to come out of a completely different realm with all these code lengths and stuff. They can be practically applied to models that are popular in biology, uh, in these cases, um, phylogenetics and epidemiology. Cool, very cool. Um, so anything else you want to bring up before we wrap this up? Um, no, I think, I think it's probably just 
just worth um, emphasizing the point about the need for for formal ways of of doing things like window size selection and so on because um, many may see that sort of like when you're doing your whole big analysis that might just be seen as like just another little detail but things like these can have wide-ranging effects um, it's kind of similar to the idea of how you set priors for example uh, people may often set priors and say, well, you know, we just set something to make things computable and they may not go and then interrogate the reliability of, of that. So to see, for example, in the case of priors specifically, they might not check um, those being recommended more and more, how much their posteriors differ from their priors. Right. So, so like the sensitivity analysis. Sensitivity analysis, exactly. Right. But, but that's exactly what you criticized at the beginning of this podcast, right? You said like, yeah. oh, they, they look if different window sizes give the same estimate, that's good enough. Exactly, exactly. And so little things like paying attention to something like window length, which which for most people using models like these, that would not be their main concern. Their main concern is just the estimate of R. But paying attention to things like window length, uh, they do have like downstream effects, especially if, um, as I said before, using the the minimum description length model is actually best for prediction. And prediction is sort of currently the most important thing in epidemiology, or one of the most important things in epidemiology, because um, right now with things like Ebola and so on, you find that you get epidemics happening and no one sort of expects it and they scramble and they try to act upon it and you want to act upon it quickly, and you need reliable predictions more than necessarily um, anything else. So it's just important to... So this this window length um, stuff is one little piece of that puzzle, but I think it's worth, when, when everyone's doing their analysis, to think about all these steps, because they can sort of confound things later on. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the idea of... Uh... Maybe without going into a Bayesian model comparison, mm -hmm. uh, but doing more Bayesian style of analysis where you sort of consider maybe a distribution over window sizes or something, right? And sort of yep. averaging across them, giving them different weights uh, based on how well they can predict yep, yep. the data. So actually, I think that's if you don't... So for the case with the renewal model and the coalescent process... Um, that you, it was possible to derive like explicit theory, right? So explicit distributions and so on. But generally doing things like model averaging, where you might say, uh, I might take every a group of possible windows and then look at all their, each of their predictions and then take sort of the a statistic of that, like the mean or so on. That's generally shown to be a good thing and definitely better than depending on a single window. So in the case of when you don't have any explicit theory to go on and so on, I think that's actually a, a recommended move, to be honest, because it has been shown to be within a certain... Um, I can't remember exactly what... And I, I guess there are various problems, but they are known to be within a certain order of um, error from whatever would be the optimal model mm -hmm. so you do pretty good just by doing things like that and Bayesian analysis in general is perhaps which is where also this stuff fits in is perhaps worth mentioning that 
when you so you'd add priors to various parameters and then you'd run things and then um, you might find all sorts of assumptions seeping in and having yeah these ways like posterior predictive checks and so on um, are super useful to preventing what is like the most known problems but still rampant overfitting and underfitting effectively cool uh all right chris thanks for uh teaching us about epidemics modeling uh cool stuff and thanks for doing the podcast yeah thanks thanks for having me and giving me a, a chance to talk about this stuff mm -hmm.